Welcome to the November 2009 Sound on Sound podcast. I'm Paul White, Editor-in-Chief, and this is Hugh Rob Johns, our Technical Editor. Hello. We've just returned from the AES show in New York, so we can tell you a bit about the new products we saw there, as well as tempting you with some of the reviews and features you'll find in the November issue of the magazine. And we'll also be answering some more reader questions in our Q&A section. In the November issue of Sound on Sound, we have an in-depth review of the revolutionary Eigenlabs Eigenharp a completely new electronic instrument that's been under development for 10 years and can be used to play its own sounds or those of third-party virtual instruments. Its unique interface is based on a matrix of square keys that are sensitive to velocity, aftertouch and movement in both the X and Y axes, which makes it possible to add expression to each individual note in a way never before possible. The included sound creation software uses a new high-bandwidth protocol as MIDI simply can't handle all the data utilised by the instrument, though the Eigenharp can still be used to play conventional MIDI instruments if required. The key matrix is user-configurable so that the keying systems can be set up to feel more familiar to keyboard players, guitar players or wind players, and there's a built-in breath controller for even more articulation. The Eigenharp comes with its own electronic base station that interfaces with a computer, and that's where the electronic sound sources and control software are hosted. Currently, the Eigenharp runs only on the Apple Mac platform, but there are Windows and Linux versions in development expected shortly. And for those wanting to try the Eigenharp at a simpler level, the forthcoming Pico Harp costs less than a decent guitar and has access to the same sound set, just much smaller and fewer keys. We also have a review of the new Sapphire Pro 24 DSP audio interface from Focusrite. And that includes their new virtual reference monitoring system, which is designed to allow users working with headphones to hear the mix in a choice of emulated mixing environments as if you were listening to loudspeakers, and they have a different selection of speakers as well. Our software review section includes a look at the Waves Eddie Kramer collection. Eddie Kramer was the man behind most of the classic Jimi Hendrix recordings. And we also look at version 3 of Steinberg's Grand Piano Virtual Instrument. We also have a fantastic interview with legendary engineer Bruce Swedian. He was the man behind Michael Jackson's Thriller album, and he also worked and made records with legends such as Quincy Jones and George Benson. Here you'll learn about the history and some of the studio secrets of a truly great studio engineer. On the other side of the coin, we have the first episode of a massive two-part feature on recording extreme metal, which covers everything from drum tuning to bass and guitar recording in great detail. Find out how to nail that vocal sound and how to use distortion to your advantage. Much of what's discussed can be applied to many other forms of rock recording, so don't shy away just because extreme metal isn't your kind of thing. First thing that grabbed my attention was the new Korg wave drum. The original was launched almost 15 years ago, but failed to find popularity due to its extremely high price. Though the fancy wooden toilet seat surround has been replaced by plastic, this new and vastly more affordable wave drum offers exactly the same sonic capabilities as the original, while its traditional style drum head responds very naturally to sticks, beaters, hands, fingers or even brushes. A separate sensor is built into the rim for triggering other sounds or playing rim shots. Its models of traditional kit and Latin sounds are uncannily real sounding, while the electronic sounds, for which the wave drum was rightly famous, still sound as fresh today as they ever did. Some PCM sample sounds have also been added so that the drum sounds can be augmented by cymbal crashes and other difficult-to-model effects. Waves have come up with a new concept in the form of their Vocal Rider native plugin. This accepts a sidechain input from a mix of the instrumental tracks 
and then automatically writes track level automation into the host DAW to keep the subjective vocal level constant without the use of compression. It's a bit like manually moving the fader up and down, but it does it automatically for you. The process can be weighted in favour of the vocal level, or the instrumental mix level, and the user can set limits on how far the gain is allowed to change. If the demonstrations were anything to go by, this should prove to be a really effective plugin, and it'll speed up the process of setting up a good vocal level. Another tool designed to make life easier for the engineer is Trigger, a very sophisticated drum replacement software package from Stephen Slate. This uses advanced algorithms to discriminate between the different drum sounds, allowing reliable detection even when significant levels of spill are present. And this has always been a problem with drum replacement software to date. A comprehensive 10-kit set of Stephen Slate sample drums is included as part of the basic EX Trigger package. The third-party drum sounds can be used instead if preferred. Platinum Pack will also be available to include the entire Stephen Slate drum library at a higher cost. The operation certainly looked extremely intuitive and the results were very effective. The dynamic performance of the original drum parts in particular were preserved extremely well and there's an anti-machine gun mode which makes Tom Fills sound more realistic. Release is expected early in 2010 so I can't wait to try that one. Sonics demonstrated their new Restore software, which is a native restoration package capable of tackling broadband noise such as hiss, as well as hums, buzzes and clicks and that kind of thing. Although the software can be used at a very basic level, it also gives the more experienced operator the option to fine-tune the processes to a very high degree using a pretty intuitive visual interface with a view to minimising all the audible processing artefacts. ATC loudspeakers showed a new near-field monitor called the SCM25, an active ported three-way in a similar format to the KNH 0300. No details were available at the time, but expect a price of around five to five and a half thousand pounds. It uh, aims to give the performance of a large-scale monitor in a smaller format, and it looked an extremely serious piece of kit. Audio-Technica has expanded its 40-series professional microphone range by introducing its first-ever ribbons. Ribbons have become really popular. There were a lot of them at the show, actually. There are two ribbon microphones in the new series. Uh, the AT4080, which looks a lot like a standard side address condenser, actually has two ribbons in it. And the 4081, which is a, a more pencil-shaped kind of microphone, still side address, but pencil-shaped. Both of these are phantom-powered because they incorporate little amplifiers inside. They're both very robust and they look really good microphones. Looking forward to reviewing those. Another addition in the 40 series was the 4050 ST. That's based on the 4050, but it's now an MS format. They managed to squeeze an extra capsule in there. You can either get MS outputs or there's a built-in decoder to give you uh, effectively cross cardioids at either 90 degrees or 126 degrees. And finally, they've done a multi-pattern version of the 4047, logically enough called the 4047 MP. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. This month's technique under discussion, as we promised last month, is all about soundproofing, or more correctly, I think we should say sound isolation. If you read any of the textbooks on the subject, they paint a pretty depressing picture, actually, because effective soundproofing really requires a very high-mass construction. There's no simple lightweight treatment here as there is for improving acoustics, for example. Sound leaks in and out of rooms directly through the walls, the doors, the windows, as well as through the floors and ceilings, but it can also be carried as vibrations along rigid structures that connect one room or space to another. So here we're going to try and offer some pragmatic advice as to how to tackle the problem without getting too deeply involved. In a typical domestic room, the doors and windows form the weak link in the chain, so it's best to tackle those first. The good quality double glazed windows actually offer pretty good sound isolation. Single glazed windows can have secondary double glazing fitted to improve them, but this needs to use as heavy glass as you can practically fit and it also needs to be completely airtight. An alternative is to build a heavy shutter and seal off the window completely, again ensuring that your handiwork is airtight, usually by fitting compressible rubber seals. 
There's not much you can do easily with lightweight walls, other than add additional layers of plasterboard to increase the mass. Brick or concrete walls are usually reasonably effective as they are, although in an extreme case you may need to build a second inner wall, comprising again multiple layers of plasterboard on a wooden frame. Doors can be more of a problem because in a typical house they're relatively lightweight and they're not airtight. Fitting a heavier door with compressible seals on all four sides will make a big improvement but may not solve the problem entirely. Another solution is to fit a heavy UPVC door as these come in frames with seals already fitted and when you close the latch the seals compress and you get a very good airtight seal. Sadly this isn't always affordable, practical or cosmetically acceptable in a domestic setup. Fortunately, there's another rule of sound isolation that tells us that barriers are more effective when there are two of them separated by an air gap. So you can apply this to doors by fitting one door flush with the inside of a wall opening inwards and another one flush with the outside of the wall opening outwards. Difficult to get through when you're drunk, but very effective from a sound point of view. You still need rubber seals on all four sides, of course, but getting an absolutely airtight seal is a little bit less critical when you have the double door situation. The simplest way to avoid sound conduction via structural vibration is simply to isolate noisy speakers or drums or other noise-making equipment from the floor using some kind of floating plinth. Uh, You can make one of these yourself uh, using a sheet of MDF or plywood resting on top of a block of dense mineral wool or glass fibre somewhere between 30 and 60 millimetres thick. Monitor speakers can be mounted on acoustically absorbing pads and that should also tighten up the bass end as well as stopping sound leakage. Of course, as Paul's pointed out, to make all this sort of sound isolation effective, air tightness is important. You've got to stop sound getting in and out through the gaps. Uh, But of course, if you're going to make a room airtight, don't forget that sooner or later you're going to run out of oxygen. So remember to keep opening the door from time to time to allow fresh air in. That's about all on that subject for now. But remember, it's all about addressing the weak link in the chain first. So there's no point uh, adding another 25 inches of concrete to your walls if the door's made out of chipboard. Sound advice. It's sound advice time, so we've pulled a few of your questions from your various letters and from the SOS forum. Uh, The first question that came up actually on a college visit last week was, uh, is it worth using real drums when you have to record in a small domestic room? Can you get a good sound out of them? Or should you use drum samples instead? Hugh, what do you think about this? I think really acoustic drums need a decent space, particularly a, a space with a high ceiling. It always tends to sound very congested and boxy in, in ordinary domestic rooms, to my ears anyway. Yeah, it's quite a tricky one. You can make some kind of improvement by hanging absorbers over the overhead mics to try and cut down on the ceiling reflections. But if you can get some kind of um, triggers for your acoustic kit or an electronic set of pads, you may get better results just triggering good quality samples. Because good playing combined with good samples usually equals a good sound. Now, the one complaint about sample drums uh, is that the cymbals don't really have all the subtle nuances of the real thing. So quite often I'll stick up a set of real cymbals over the top of my own V-drum kit, mic them up with a stereo overhead pair, but then roll off a lot of the low end to get rid of the room boxiness so that you're effectively just getting the cymbals with the overheads. Add that to the um, to the sample drums and you can get some fantastic results. So I think, yes, by all means, give it a shot with your acoustic drums. But if you have to cheat a little bit, don't feel bad about it. Sounds like good advice to me. Uh, right, we need another question then. OK, a question that came off the forum recently was uh, about recording bass guitars. And the question was basically, is it better to use a a DI on a bass guitar or to mic up the amp? And if it is better to mic up the amp, are there any particular techniques and how similar or dissimilar from micing up a guitar amp? Paul, what are your thoughts? 
a lot of modern recordings are made using DI, but sometimes an amplifier has a kind of character that you can't emulate too well by modelling or, or just by straight DI, in which case miking it is a good option. You said that part of the question was how does the miking technique of a, a bass guitar cabinet differ to that of a, a regular guitar? The most obvious thing, I suppose, is that microphone needs good low-end extension to capture those really low um, bass notes. But also it's traditional to move the mic a little further away from the speaker. With an electric guitar, you quite often put the mic very close to the speaker grill. With a bass, it's nicer if you let it breathe a little bit. Pull the mic back six inches or maybe a foot from the grill. Again, experiment with moving the mic to the side of the cone or back to the centre of the cone and see what tonal changes you get there because all these things make a difference. Yeah, I think that's, that's good advice. Uh, the other thing to be aware of, if you're going to mic a cabinet in a room is the whole problem of standing waves in a room. And often you need to be quite experimental about where you put the bass cab and where you put the microphone because you can find places where some notes just don't get picked up by the microphone at all. Uh, some can be really booming. It's all to do with modes in the room. So don't be afraid to experiment a little bit with that. Yeah, that's actually a very important point. And it's probably just as well not to start off with the speaker cabinet too close to a wall or a corner and also not bang in the centre of the room because that's where all the room modes tend to uh, cancel out. So you end up with big bass nulls and bass peaks. Yeah, I have had to rescue recordings before where uh, the bass player's done a lovely walking bass line and some of the notes have just been not there and they accuse the bass player, but it, it wasn't that at all. It was because the mic and the cab were in the wrong place in the room. Another subject that comes up on the forum from time to time uh, regards getting electric shocks off microphones, which as you probably can guess, is potentially rather dangerous, but not always the case. Hugh, would you like to explain this? Yeah, there's there's two different kinds of shocks, really. There's there's one which is caused by an electrical fault, and there's one which is caused by static. And the main difference between the two is that uh, one caused by static is, is a one-off instant event. You know, you touch something, you get a zap, but if you touch it again, you don't get another zap, whereas an electrical fault tends to be continuous. The static shock isn't particularly dangerous, it's just annoying, and uh, an electrical fault is seriously dangerous. I've also found that um, you can get static-like electric shocks that um, repeat every time you touch the piece of equipment if part of the system isn't earthed. Uh, for example, if it's designed to run from a two-pin power supply, and uh, laptop-based systems are notorious for this. I mean, Very often, if I'm playing an earthed electric guitar and I touch my laptop, I get quite a tingle off the thing. And that's purely because it's not grounded, and so the thing builds up a, a charge on the surface and uh, it discharges through you every time you touch it. It's not dangerous, but it's damned annoying. Yeah, I know, I know that kind of problem. Um, so really what it comes down to is electric shocks. You've got to have some kind of circuit, and usually that circuit, um, obviously it's going through you, and either the object is earthed and you're charged, or you're earthed and the object is charged. Well, the main problem, the important thing, is that you've got a decent, solid safety earth. Uh, and that means it's got to be uh, an earth system and it's earthed all the way back through the mains plug to the wall socket and the whole chain has to be safe. And the best way of checking that is to get one of those little mains checkers you can find in any of the DIY stores. You plug it in a socket and there's a series of lights on the front and it'll tell you whether there's a proper earth there and whether the live and neutral are around and all those kind of things. That's That's the first step. The other thing you can do is if you are working with a laptop-based system where nothing has a proper ground on it, is to put one piece of gear in the system that you can ground... Uh, or fasten an earth wire to a metal part on, say, a preamplifier or an interface and ground that. Mm. It'll also clean up the sound of the recordings because quite often, if nothing is grounded, you'll end up with serious hum problems. The other very sensible thing you can do is invest in a number of RCDs, earth protection trips. Uh, again, they can buy them in any of the DIY stores or from the electrical people like Maplin and so on. 
and it's uh, basically just a device you plug into the socket and then you plug your equipment into that and it has a couple of buttons on the front for testing and resetting the unit. Yeah, what they effectively do is they look at the outgoing current and the return current, and if the two don't match, they assume that it's going somewhere it shouldn't, i.e. through you. If that exceeds a few milliamps, they switch off the power. Absolutely. So if it detects a fault, it kills the power rather than letting it kill you, and that's an important thing. So good advice is always check a socket before you use it, and always use an RCD on your equipment. And the other thing is always every time you use your equipment, whether you're packing it up or taking it out to use... Have a good look at it. Make sure that the cables, the mains cables, aren't damaged in any way. It's, it's quite easy for them to get snagged around things or, or somebody put something sharp on it, cuts through the cable. So just a simple visual check. Make sure that all the uh, cables are secure and tight, the plugs are on tight, the lids aren't loose, there's no wires poking out anywhere, and there's no damage to the cables. And often that's all you need to do to make sure that all your gear is in good condition. Of course, if you're not comfortable or confident doing your own electrical repairs and checking, it is worth having your cables pat tested and also your pieces of mains powered equipment. If you have any questions you'd like answered in our podcast, then just send us an email to podcast at soundonsound.com. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. That brings us to the end of the November Sound on Sound podcast, and you'll find the November issue of the magazines in the shops right now. If you'd like to subscribe, check out our back issues or see our AES show's news videos, or join in on our forum discussions, just go to soundonsound.com. Sound on Sound.